Hi, everyone. I'm Alex Abnos from The Athletic, and this is Soccer Every Day for Wednesday, March 9th. Today's episode comes to us via The Lead, which is another daily podcast here at The Athletic that covers one story in the broader world of sports every single day. And yesterday they did an episode that I thought was really helpful about Roman Abramovich, why he's selling Chelsea, and a lot of the context around that. So we're just going to play that episode for you today. It's really, really well done and involves Matt Slater from The Athletic UK. But before we get to any of that, your TV guide for today, as always, all times are Eastern. And it's a big day in Europe, just like yesterday. This time, though, we have the Europa League. We're in the round of 16 there. And the first leg are happening between Porto and Olympique Lyon and Real Betis versus Eintracht Frankfurt. Both of those games are on Paramount Plus and both kick off at 12.45 p.m. In the Champions League, we have Real Madrid versus PSG. Obviously, the big headline matchup that's going to be on big CBS at 3 p.m. PSG is up 1-0 on aggregate, but Kylian Mbappe is an injury doubt for PSG. The other matchup is a little bit less exciting just based on competitiveness. Manchester City versus Sporting of Lisbon. Uh, City is up 5-0 on aggregate in that one. So (laughs) if Sporting is able to come back, that would be really something. Probably not going to happen, though. In any case, that is going to be on Paramount Plus at 3 p.m. And then, of course, we have the CONCACAF Champions League tonight at 8 p.m. New England Revolution hosting Pumas on Fox Sports 2 and 2 de N. And then at 10 p.m., Cruz Azul hosting Club de Foot Montreal on Fox Sports 2 and 2 de N. All right, let's send it over to Anders Kelto, host of the lead with Matt Slater. Matt Slater, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Matt, we're here to talk about one of the most elusive owners, I think, of any professional sports team in the world. A guy who seems to be both very well-known, but also very mysterious, Chelsea's Roman Abramovich. So, let's just start at the beginning with his origin story. Can you tell us about his background and his rise to power in Russia? What do we know? Well, as you say, he's elusive. He doesn't give interviews. So we, you know, we don't know huge amounts, but there's enough. He was an orphan at two. His mother died in a medical procedure. His father died in an accident on a construction site. Only child. He was then raised by family members, aunts, uncles, a grandmother, kind of passed around a bit. Grew up sometime in a a sort of North Russian oil town. Went back to Moscow. Not an easy upbringing. At 18, he was conscripted. He did his time in the army. And the legend sort of started there, really. This man was a born entrepreneur. I think he started selling petrol that had been siphoned out of military vehicles. Hmm. And as soon as he kind of got out of the army, he went back to Moscow and just became a salesman. Perfume, chocolate, cigarettes, you name it. This guy wanted to make money. And a very important relationship formed with a guy called Boris Beresovsky. In the old days, he'd been a star mathematician. And then he swapped calculus for car dealing. I opened there a dealership of Mercedes, of Volvo, of General Motors, a Chrysler, Daewoo, a Honda. And we were leading dealer in, in Russia. This is the mid-90s now. So we're now in sort of Boris Yeltsin. This is, this is the collapse of the Soviet Union, this sort of era, the opening up of their economy, the Wild East. There was serious money to be made in the privatization of national assets. Natural resources were our country's strength but all of it was given to private individuals. A few people now own it all, the forest, the land, everything. He and Berezovsky basically picked up 
Sibneft, this newly created Russian oil company for peanuts. Sibneft, now worth $15 billion, was auctioned for just $150 million. Abramovich and Berezovsky insist that no one else was prepared to take the gamble, one which was to earn them a markup of 10,000%. And that was at the beginning. That was the beginning of this guy as a billionaire. Well, you know, one of the central questions in this whole situation with Roman Abramovich is his relationship with Vladimir Putin and how exactly Abramovich became one of the richest men in Russia. Because, you know, as I understand it, Matt, this is not a country where you become rich, certainly not that level of rich, unless you sort of join the corrupt oligarch club, so to speak. So what, if anything, do we know about his relationship with Vladimir Putin and with his predecessor, Boris Yeltsin? Well, this is where we sort of move into a topic that has been incredibly contentious. It's been discussed at at the highest levels of parliament. But look, I think as your question frames it, it is impossible for anyone in Russia at that time not to come into very close contact with the state. You, You do not achieve the levels of wealth that Abramovich achieved and his sort of fellow oligarchs, these very, very rich private individuals achieve without having to have a relationship with the government, with the state. Now, Putin took over from Yeltsin around the turn of the millennium, and Abramovich was already significant. He'd already made a lot of money. He was already powerful. And I think the first sort of key situation in this relationship that he clearly has with Putin is he became governor of a state called Chukotka, right in the sort of frozen reaches of the country, a very, very poor part of Russia. And it does appear that, that, that Putin effectively asked him to do this. And it was a way of staying out of trouble. It was a way of giving something back. It was a way of sort of safeguarding the, 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 the enormous wealth he'd made very, very quickly. And you can sort of see this in, the, in what happened to other oligarchs that fell out with Putin, that either sort of tried to become political figures in their own right, Abramovich, very, very clever, never really wanted to do that, apart from doing this sort of governor role, which really appeared to be just spending a lot of his own money in this poor region. He never did that, whereas some of the other oligarchs did. And they then found themselves in serious trouble with the Kremlin, with with the Russian government, in terms of investigations into how they made their money, into tax fraud. They were effectively taken out. Now, Abramovich avoided that. So that, I think, is really the sort of the nub of this whole debate around how close he is to Putin. What kind of compromises did he make? What kind of relationship was that? Was it at one end of the extreme, very close? It's been discussed that he was effectively become Putin's an economic advisor, he's a private banker. Or was it just a businessman being smart, working out what he needed to do to survive in Russia and to sort of stay out of trouble? Hmm. Well, setting all of that aside for a minute, after... Abramovich amassed this incredible amount of wealth. He bought Chelsea in 2003 for, I believe, around 140 million pounds. Matt, can you talk about how his purchase of the team at that time transformed both Chelsea and really the Premier League? Absolutely. So Chelsea were a pretty big team in the in the 60s and 70s. Then they had a bad 70s, 80s, early 90s. 20 policemen were injured and 104 people arrested during trouble inside and outside the Stamford Bridge ground. Fans began pouring onto the pitch just after Sunderland's second goal had put the match beyond Chelsea's reach. As the police tried to check the violence, one officer went down under a hail of improvised missiles, seats torn from the stands. A successful businessman in the UK called Matthew Harding poured money into them and 
they became successful in the mid to late 90s. That was the team that Abramovich bought. They'd already started to sort of become something. And he threw money at them. This is before financial fair play rules. He just spent huge amounts of money, get the great managers. Obviously, Jose Mourinho is probably the most famous. Our group is a special group. Our group is a special group. They, they deserve this. And um, Roman, I think he deserves a lot. We had a bit of a two-horse race at that time, around that you know late 90s, early 90s. It was Manchester United and Arsenal. Suddenly, Chelsea entered the mix. They've won five Premier League titles. They've won two Champions Leagues. Uh, they've won a load of cups as well. And look, only a month or so ago, they became club world champions. Havertz puts it in. Applause from the owner. And that may well be the penalty that wins the FIFA Club World Cup for Chelsea. He's now, he's 19 trophies in 19 years. They've now won everything they could win. So, yes, he made Chelsea good really quickly and he certainly made them a bit of a global brand, whereas before they'd been a very much a sort of British team with, with local West London support. They now have supporters all around the world. And tell us a little about his personality and his reputation as an owner. What are some of the stories you've heard about him in his time as Chelsea owner? Well, the same words come up again and again. Quiet, shy, unassuming self-effacing, sphinx-like. All the, the image we had of him was you'd see him in his box at Stamford Bridge and he'd be there watching the game. He'd, he clearly loves football. And you'd see him with a trophy if there was a trophy to be handed around. But this is a guy that didn't, didn't jump up and down. You never saw him angry. You never saw him, as I said, going crazy. He, by all accounts, was a presence at the club. He had an office there. He liked to be across things. He didn't throw his weight around. He liked to listen. They, the number of times I've heard these stories that, that that he'd be in on a meeting and sometimes you wouldn't know he was there. He was listening. He was taking it all in. Hmm. So this is the sort of picture that has formed of him. This guy that was really hard to read. The stubble, he had a sort of faint sort of a tan. Obviously, you know, he basically lived on a yacht and he'd follow the sun. And he'd spent a lot of time in the Caribbean. I think he has a, an estate in St. Bart's. And his New Year's Eve parties... You know, he'd have Prince or Paul McCartney or the Killers would come along and mm. and entertain a, a crowd full of models and famous other business people. Was he there? Did toast? No, that wasn't his style. He might, he might be there in the background, but people didn't go to hang out with him. He was throwing an amazing party. This guy seems a bit, well, boring in some ways, mm. but fabulously wealthy. Oh, and he had a <laughs> really successful football club. Well, Matt, there was perhaps an early sign of the trouble to come for Roman Abramovich a few years ago when he somewhat mysteriously stopped showing up for Chelsea games, you know, after being, as you said, a fixture in the owner's box for so many years. And if I understand this correctly, it was linked, at least in a way, to a, a major international scandal. Can you explain exactly what happened and how Abramovich was impacted by it? So this was uh, 2018. A former KGB agent called Skripal and his daughter were poisoned. This is Sergei Skripal on the morning of March 4th. By 4.15, emergency services received a call that led police officers here to the churchyard where Sergei and Yulia Skripal 
were found on a bench. They were targeted by the Russian Secret Service. Investigators putting forward charges uh, against two Russian nationals, Alexander Petrov and Ruslan Bosharov. They believe uh, that those may not be their real names of these two individuals. They've also released... A policeman almost died, someone else almost died who kind of inadvertently touched it. So it caused a huge rift. We will not tolerate the threat to life of British people and others on British soil from the Russian government. And I think that it was a belated reckoning that we had let Russians launder reputations and fortunes in London for years. Anyone that was willing to invest about £2 million would get you a residency. We made it very easy for them to list their companies on the London Stock Exchange, far easier than the New York Stock Exchange. They owned a lot of property. So there was a big national conversation, really, off the back of this poisoning. And long story short, he lost his visa and was a person of interest to the British government. And how did that situation resolve? Well, it hasn't resolved for him. He eventually became a citizen of Israel and more recently Portugal. He has been able to visit a couple times in the last year or so, thanks to his Israeli passport and, and more recently his Portuguese passport. So he has been to events at Chelsea. In fact, one of the things he's been doing in the last few years, he's been doing a lot of philanthropy around anti-Semitism, around Holocaust, you know, education programs. And he has visited Chelsea and visited London as part of that work. All right. Well, Matt, let's jump to the present here. The world, of course, has been watching in horror as Russia has been waging its war against Ukraine. As Russia began its offensive late last month, how did things start to play out for Roman Abramovich and his ownership of Chelsea? Actually, people were asking questions about him even before. So as I said, it's been a quite a long running saga with him. There's been a series of books about him. The most prominent one is this one called Putin's People, written by a really good journalist called Catherine Belton. And she made a number of allegations in the book. I guess the key one is that he effectively bought Chelsea on Putin's behest and Abramovich sued her. She had to make some minor changes, but on her central claim, if you like, in terms of the thing we're interested in, she didn't back down at all. Now, in January, a former minister, a Conservative member of parliament called David Davis, talked about him. Why is he allowed to own Chelsea? Why are we not going after his assets? Because he was a person of interest to us in 2018. You know, what is his relationship with Putin? And then we get to the more recently with the invasion and lots of MPs are talking about it now. Surely Mr Abramovich should no longer be able to own a football club in this country. Surely we should be looking at seizing some of his assets, including his £152 million home. Chris Bryant, a Labour politician, basically said twice, on two different occasions, why isn't he on our sanctions list? And then the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, he gets a chance every week to ask six questions, any questions he likes of the Prime Minister. His first question, why isn't Roman Abramovich on the sanctions list? Last week, the Prime Minister said that Abramovich is facing sanctions. He later corrected the record to say that he isn't. Well, why on earth isn't he? Uh, uh, Mr Speaker, it's not appropriate for me to comment on individual uh, cases at this stage. Uh, but That pretty much changed everything. Almost daily now, we had politicians protecting themselves from libel, doing it in Parliament, to say, why isn't this bloke who owns Chelsea being sanctioned? This is embarrassing. 
Within two, three days, we had the plan that he was going to try and pass the club off to the charitable foundations, create some sort of distance between himself. He was going to remain the owner, but he wanted the six trustees of Chelsea's the charity, the Chelsea Foundation, to assume control of the club. Now, those six trustees obviously have to be comfortable with what Roman Abramovich is proposing. And that plan was cooked up very quickly. It clearly was never going to work. Within two, Mm. three more days, no, I'm selling. He says, I would like to address the speculation in the media over the past few days in relation to my ownership of Chelsea FC. It said, you know, great regret, best interest of the club at heart, I'm going to sell. As I believe this is in the best interest of the club, the fans, the employees, as well as the club's sponsors and also their partners. And he talks about the war in Ukraine. That was quite interesting he used the word war because, of course, we know in Russia they're calling it all kinds of euphemisms. And he talks about the net proceeds from the sale. So net proceeds, that's quite interesting. We're still kind of trying to work out what that means. Will go towards a foundation that he's going to set up for the victims of the war. The foundation will be for the benefit of all victims of the war in Ukraine. This includes providing critical funds towards the urgent and immediate needs of victims, as well as supporting the long-term work of recovery. Now, he doesn't say Ukrainian victims, he doesn't say Russian victims. It's a bit vague there. You know, could some of that money go to Russian victims of the war? We don't know. But he also said he didn't want his 1.5 billion back. So I think those were the kind of key things. Right, this guy is sounds like he's willing to walk away from 1.5 billion he's owed, and it sounds like he's going to hand over the money, whatever he gets for this club, and he's going to give that to, effectively to charity. Is this how he gets over this? Is this how he, you know, in two, three years when the, when the dust has settled, is this how he re-enters Western society? Is this going to upset Putin? Has he had Putin's nod to say, no, that's fine? Hmm. These are the questions that are being asked. Yeah. Well, I do just want to clarify here, Matt, that again, Roman Abramovich, at this point in time, at least, is not on the list of Russian oligarchs who have been sanctioned. You know, we've seen other billionaires have their assets, their homes, their yachts seized. But Abramovich so far hasn't been touched. That's correct. Hasn't been sanctioned in the US, the EU or the UK. And so maybe this is a sort of leading question, but considering that, you know, why then does he feel like he needs to sell the club? If he claims to be a legitimate businessman, why look to sell the club now? It's a good question. And I think it's something for our listeners to ponder. He's not a stupid man. He pays people to make sure he's never taken by surprise. I think it's pretty obvious why. He thinks he's going to be sanctioned. Mm -hmm. There can be no other explanation. So, Matt, I also wanted to look at the situation from the perspective of Chelsea fans. How, in your view, do fans and people associated with the club view what's going on? Do they see Abramovich here as a guy who's possibly being treated unfairly, you know, who's being unfairly linked to corrupt Russian leaders? Or do you think they're maybe starting to open their eyes and ask some questions about how he might have actually made his money? Well, (laughs) good question. Chelsea fans love Roman Abramovich. I think he's done well by... Chelsea and well by all the fans here. He's put a lot of money in. He's had unprecedented success. Why punish him? He's got nothing to do with what Putin is doing. Uh, well, there, there, I mean, there is a history of a relationship between the two of them. 
They see a guy who loves football. I don't, I don't know where they see a guy who's put his money where his mouth is. I think there are some Chelsea fans who, who, who've always perhaps been a little bit uneasy about it. But for as long as he has been able to say, I'm just the successful businessman who happens to be Russian, prove that I'm somehow linked to Putin. Prove it. I'm not on a ban list. As long as that's been the case, it's been okay. He's broken no laws. And they're worried that whoever comes next is not going to be as generous as he was. They played Burnley away at the weekend. And all Premier League teams did a sort of, uh, you know, a, a kind of a show of solidarity with Ukraine. Chelsea fans chanted his name throughout. And Thomas Tuchel, the manager uh, of Chelsea, he said after the game they thought that was that was wrong. Need our fans to commit to this minute of of applause in the moment we do it for Ukraine. They have our our thoughts and our support, and we should stand together as a club. It's not the moment for other messages. So, Matt, who at this time are seen as Chelsea's most likely buyers? The sensible money is on American money, a big billionaire or a syndicate of billionaires, or a big firm, you know, a CVC, a Carlisle, a Bain, a, a Blackstone, someone like that, being able to buy a big six Premier League club right now at a bit of a discount. It wasn't that long ago that he rejected offers of 2.2, 2.3 billion pounds. He, he wanted 3 billion pounds, you know, $3 billion, dollars, three and a half, four billion dollars. He was saying, no, I don't think he's going to get that price now. Because if he is sanctioned, the club is frozen. The asset is frozen. So there is a sort of time element to this. So I think it is probably going to be some form of American ownership. But I might be wrong. And there have been other names thrown into the hat. It's been a Swiss billionaire. There was a Turkish story the other day. Often you get guys that just showing off a little bit. They want their name attached to a big story like this. Or they are kind of fishing for others' investors. They're saying, oh, yeah, I'd like to buy this club. Come join me. So there's a bit of that. But I, th there's going to be interest that people will try and buy Chelsea. No question. Finally, Matt, you know, two other English Premier League clubs have fairly recently been purchased by, I think it's fair to say, questionable owners. You had Man City being bought by Sheikh Mansour of Abu Dhabi. And then just last year, Newcastle United was bought by essentially the Saudi royal family. There was outcry when both of those purchases were made, but, you know, eventually they both went through and, and a lot of people just sort of moved on. Do you think with this Roman Abramovich situation, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, all the sanctions, all the international uproar, all the questions being asked about Roman Abramovich, do you think we're now at a tipping point where the public in the UK will demand that football clubs not be sold to autocratic leaders or people in their orbit? And do you think that English soccer officials will try to change the rules around who is and isn't allowed to buy a team. No. <laughs> Look, funnily enough, when, when Manchester City were bought, there wasn't really an outcry. It sailed through that one. Newcastle was different. Newcastle was a proper contentious saga that dominated sports and, and front pages for, for a year. We all know about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the war in Yemen. Since the conflict began, analysts estimate more than 91,000 Yemenis have been killed, another three million displaced by the fighting, and the country is on the brink of famine. LGBT rights, treatment of women, etc., etc. It was it was a, a proper debate about that one. Now it went through. It went through because it met UK company law. 
The Public Investment Fund, the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia invests in lots of British things, lots of American things as well, Starbucks, etc., etc., and Uber and football's rulebook just had nothing really to stop it. And I don't think there's massive appetite to do anything about it going forward. There'll be lots of gnashing of teeth and, oh, you know, we've got to have a big rethink and what, what can we do about it? But as long as these people meet UK company law and have lots of money, I can't see British football club owners who set the rules. They don't want to raise the bar too high because they're thinking about who they're going to sell to. They're thinking about, well, I don't want to make this club too hard to sell. How do I get out? And I think we've just got to a point where, certainly for these big clubs, there aren't that many people around that can afford them. We are now talking about sovereign wealth funds or huge private equity funds. The the days when the, the local Mr. Big would buy a club to give something back or to show off or to launder his reputation a little bit, we've gone beyond that. It's all soft power now. And I think it's too late to row back. Thanks so much for joining us today and I guess painting a very realistic picture of what's happening. A depressing picture sometimes. <laughs> you can follow all of Matt Slater's coverage of the Premier League and the many messy issues swirling around it at theathletic.com. From Wondery and The Athletic, I'm Andres Skelto. Thanks for listening. <laughs>